Welcome to It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland. Featuring stimulating in-depth interviews with special guests from all areas of the arts. And now, here's your host for It's a Question of Balance, Ruth Copland. Welcome to the show where we balance the intellectual with the creative, exploring whether we have more in common than divides us through thought-provoking conversations. For the topic hour, I go out and about and talk to people on the street about a wide variety of different subjects that affect everybody, both locally and globally. And for this, the Arts Hour, I interview local, national and international guests from all areas of the arts. And the show combines a debate topic with an arts interview because I feel discussion and creativity are two of the most vital ways we engage with the world. This week, as my special guest from the arts, I'm pleased to be interviewing number one New York Times bestselling author Neil Stevenson. Neil is known for his speculative fiction works, which have been described variously as science fiction, historical fiction, maximalism or Baroque, cyberpunk and post-cyberpunk. His novels explore areas such as mathematics, cryptography, philosophy, currency, the history of science and envelope-pushing concepts of various kinds. Neil also writes non-fiction articles about technology in publications such as Wired magazine and has worked as an advisor for Blue Origin, a company funded by Jeff Bezos, developing a manned suborbital launch system. He is also chief futurist at Magic Leap, which produces a head-mounted virtual retinal display called Magic Leap One, which superimposes 3D computer-generated imagery over real-world objects. Neil's best-selling and critically acclaimed novels include Seven Eves, which Bill Gates named as one of his top ten favourite books, and President Obama selected for his 2016 summer reading list. Other acclaimed novels are Reamed, Anathem, The Rise and Fall of D.O.D.O. with Nicole Garland, The System of the World, The Confusion, Quicksilver, Cryptonomicon, The Diamond Age, Snow Crash, Zodiac and the non-fiction works, In the Beginning was The Command Line and Some Remarks. Neil's latest book is Fall or Dodge in Hell, which combines the technological, philosophical and spiritual in one grand myth raising profound questions about the breakthroughs which may transform our future. Exploring the future of social media, online identity and the pursuit of eternal life, Kirkus Reviews describes fall or dodge in hell as endlessly inventive and absorbing. The book comes out on June 4th and Neil will be in Santa Cruz on June 6th to talk about it and sign copies. And you can get more information about this ticketed off-site event at bookshopsantacruz.com. Right now, Neil is here on It's a Question of Balance. Welcome to the show, Neil. Hello, Ruth. It's good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, it's always um, great to to speak to authors when they're on a tour, but I appreciate also that it's very tiring, I imagine. <laughs> well, the tour hasn't actually started yet. So, oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm fresh as a daisy. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Well, we're very lucky then. <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you, your life is steeped in creativity. I'm wondering if you can remember the first time 
that art of any kind had a deep effect on you beyond just entertainment, whether it was a book or a picture or music, a film, some other kind of art? Uh, well, it was probably um, probably books, kind of a predictable answer there. Uh, <laughs> the um, uh, Actually, I'll mention one that, that uh, pops up very early in, uh, in, in Fall or Dodge in Hell, which is Dolaire's book of Greek myths, which mm. is a, a treatment of the ancient Greek mythology um, that's done in a very colorful kind of childlike uh, style, um, which uh, uh, had a big effect on me when I was young enough to look at it, and, mm. um, uh, and, and which I ended up incorporating into the new novel. Mm. Well, that's interesting, yeah. Did you grow up in a creative environment, would you say, or did you find sort of uh, more arty things for yourself? Maybe not, uh, not as as some people would define it. I grew up in Ames, Iowa, which is a university town, mm -hmm. um, home of a university of of science and technology, uh, Iowa State. And uh, my father was a professor there. My mother was a biochemist. Um, and so uh, there was, I would say, a lot of creativity there in the kind of scientific and engineering domains. Um, right. Yeah. Also, also a lot of art, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, pursued by um, as an avocation by by uh, people who might have technical jobs during the day, but in the, mm. in the off hours they might sing in a choir or um, or, or pursue some kind of uh, artistic uh, interests of their own. Yes. Yeah. You mentioned both your parents were scientists and you obviously had an interest in science and technology from a young age. So I'm wondering what made you want to write fiction, albeit about sort of science and technology? Well, um, I, I began to read science fiction uh, very early, uh, followed it quite avidly, and, um, uh, and I always liked the idea of maybe having a job um, that would uh, enable me to kind of uh, follow my own interests, do what I wanted to do. Mm. Um, I, I can remember very clearly a moment um, when I was probably in about fourth grade when uh, a friend of mine showed up for school one day wearing leather shoes. Uh, until then, everyone had worn sneakers. Okay. Um, so I saw that as the beginning of a, uh, a trend I really didn't like. Mm. Um, I could see how it would, would lead down the road to um, ever more confining and uncomfortable clothes and I began thinking about um, career options that uh, that might enable me to wear whatever I wanted. Right. <laughs> That's funny. And was it the fact that you read a lot of science fiction that drew you to writing as your art form rather than, say, film? Well, uh, writing is has the advantage that um, you can just sit down and do it. Um, I'm still... Uh, I was growing up kind of in an era before you could just whip the phone out of your pocket and shoot HD quality 
um, video and edit it on right. a computer. It was all, you know, pretty inaccessible. Yes. I did. Uh, we did have a video camera in my junior high school and we made a couple of little movies, uh, there. Um, mm. so, so I remember experimenting with that. Um, but it's all pretty cumbersome, isn't it? Compared to just sitting down at a typewriter and banging out some words. Right. Yes. Yeah, that's true. What is your process for writing? I, I'm wondering, and I don't know if it's evolved over time and if it's different for different books you've written or whether you have a particular way that you get from a concept to a fully written book. Mm -hmm. It's a little different for different books, but uh, basically I get up in the morning, I um, you know, have my coffee, read the paper, and then try to get to work uh, <clears throat> without getting distracted or enraged by anything. Which right. <laughs> maybe maybe I should stop reading the paper if that's the. I was going to say that's but, increasingly difficult, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, uh, basically I get essentially all of my writing done between maybe eight and ten thirty or eleven in the morning, and then I I stop, um, and I I like to stop in the middle of of a chapter. Um, mm. because then it's easier to, uh, to keep going the next day. And, and then I go and do something that is entirely unrelated, uh, for the remainder of the day. Oh, interesting. And you find that that helps your creativity with what you're doing? I think it just makes the, the work better. Um, after I published my very first novel, I, uh, decided to have a work ethic and um, felt that I had, I, you know, correctly felt that I'd been quite fortunate um, and, uh, and that I should make the most of it. And so I would kind of force myself to work, you know, a, a full eight hour day. Mm. And um, so the book that I wrote next was just terrible. <laughs> it, it, and it was terrible in a frustrating way. And then mm. it had some, some good elements in it, um, mm. but those were sort of buried in in lower quality material uh, from which it, it couldn't be extricated. And it was I, I sort of figured out that all of the better ideas were things that I had written first thing in the day, and that um, uh, mm. if I kept working beyond that point. Um, I was just kind of ruining the good stuff by by piling on a, a lot of bad stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. So, and I think it yeah. differentiates art from other pursuits as well because I, I think it is a distillation in a moment, uh, well, or moments with art, you know, uh, uh, that come from a lot of different um, inputs. And it is different. It, it isn't about sitting there for eight hours you know you could do something amazing in half an hour that's been distilled from all these different places and yet you know there is this pressure isn't there from society with lots of different things you know especially I think in America with the whole sort of work ethic thing you know 12-hour work days and things and I think yeah. it's an interesting um, thing that you found you know because I think it is counter to to art yeah well I, I also think that um, a great deal of the sort of mental processing that needs to happen in order to, to generate a work of art is happens kind of in the 
back of the mind mm-hmm. in, a, in an unconscious way um, and that you have to create space for that processing to happen. Yeah. And sitting, sitting there staring at the, the typewriter or the computer with sweat beating up on your forehead, you know, isn't necessarily the, uh, the best way to allow that, that background processing to happen. Yeah. So, so that's why I try to find um, uh, pursuits that I can follow during the rest of the day that are as different from, from that as they can possibly be. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was uh, Picasso who said that inspiration exists, but it has to find you working. And I think that what working means for artists, at least from my observation, is is different to you know what we might think of as as working and that in a way artists are always working because and some of it yeah. I think is unconscious but whatever's happening to them they're processing through and through an artistic filter and that I think comes back to the work at least that's what I have I've observed with dif- different people different artists yeah I agree yeah yeah, it's interesting that you said that, though. I don't think you might be the first person, first author I've spoken to who said that. So that's interesting. Um, it's become more common for would-be writers to study MFAs. And it's quite a new phenomenon. I think, really, you know, traditionally, writers through time haven't studied writing formally. They, they've, you know, their skill has come more from sort of broad reading of other works you're a, a literary writer. Um, how would you say you honed your craft of writing? Um, well, I certainly didn't get an MFA or pursue any other formal course of, of study. Um, you know, to, to be clear, I think whatever works is great. And yes, so yeah. I, I wouldn't ever presume to, um, uh, to, to criticize somebody else's uh, uh you know, path. But, yeah. Um, for me, it was, uh, I was, I guess, mostly an, an autodidact and um, I just tried to, uh, um, to, uh, to, to write in a way that, um, that, that spoke to me and that I hope might, might speak to other people. Yes. It's not a very, there's not a whole not a whole lot of useful information in that answer, I guess. <laughs> no, well, I mean, um, you know, it's obviously worked for you. I mean, you know, your your books are uh, very well written. So um, we're going to go to a break now. If you just joined us, you're listening to It's Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest this week, number one New York Times bestselling author Neil Stevenson. We'll be back after these messages with more conversation. like the music from It's a Question of Balance with Ruth Copland? Have you ever wondered what the full songs sound like? Now you can find out by listening to the new EP, It's a Question of Balance Music, available from iTunes, Amazon, and It's a Question of Balance.com. Did I or didn't I say it's for L? 
It's a question of balanced music. Download individual tracks or the whole EP from iTunes, Amazon, or it's a question of balance.com. Hi, I'm Casey, and I'm the second generation owner of Bookshop Santa Cruz. We pride ourselves on being Santa Cruz's community bookstore. We feature an extensive selection of new and used books, children's books and toys, gifts, cards, magazines, and games. Our knowledgeable booksellers can help you find just the right book or gift. We hope you can join us for our author events each week featuring best-selling authors and books of local interest. And if you can't get downtown, our website has over 3.2 million titles which ship directly to your home. We even have experts on site to help you publish your own book or family history. Come visit us downtown or at our website, bookshopsantacruz.com. Bookshop Santa Cruz has been an independent bookseller for over half a century in the community we love. Visit Bookshop Santa Cruz downtown. We love our customers and the books that make it all possible. Bookshop Santa Cruz, online and in downtown Santa Cruz. Welcome back. You're listening to It's Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest from the arts this week, number one New York Times best-selling author, Neil Stevenson. And in the break there, we heard from Bookshop Santa Cruz, and I wanted to remind you, I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, that Neil Stevenson is going to be in Santa Cruz um, on June 6th to talk about his new book, Fall or Dodge in Hell, and he's going to also be signing copies. This is an off-site event for Bookshop Santa Cruz, ticketed and off-site, so you do need to, to get tickets in advance. And you can do that by going into the store, Bookshop Santa Cruz uh, downtown, or also by going to their website, bookshopsantacruz.com, and you can find out more information there about the um, location and time. It's in, in the evening, 7 p.m. on June 6th. So, um, Neil, I, I mentioned uh, your latest book just coming out is called Fall or Dodge in Hell. It's a vast book, but could you give listeners a taste of the story also without giving too much away? Well, this is a pretty hard one to uh, to describe without at least some spoilers. Um, so I'll say that it features uh, a couple of characters from a previous book of mine named, named Green D, which... Um, it's not really a sequel, so you don't have to have read Reemdy in order to, to follow uh, this one. Right. Uh, but, but what happens is that there's a character named Richard Porthrast, who, whose nickname is Dodge, who is a, uh, a man who's made a lot of money um, setting up a big, uh, massively multiplayer online game. So it's an imaginary world uh, that people run around in um, for entertainment. And he um, suddenly 
dies uh, during a routine medical procedure. It's one of these weird uh, glitches that happens sometimes. Um, and it turns out that when he was younger and just sort of coming into his money, he signed a will that um, stated that uh, his remains were to be preserved in the hopes that later he could be brought back to life. And at the time he signed it, it was kind of assumed that that would mean freezing mm. the body and trying to reanimate it later, but times have changed. And so the way that um, his friends and family end up putting the will into effect is by scanning his brain digitally and storing the data. So um, a generation later, um, his his niece, um, who barely knew him when she was a toddler, uh, has now become uh, a brain researcher, and she actually manages to reboot these files uh, kind of in the cloud. And so uh, Dodge wakes up, but uh, he can't remember um, the world that he came from. Uh, he's uh, just a sort of disembodied consciousness floating in a field of, of static um, or chaos. And uh, gradually he begins to shape a, uh, a world uh, that feels right to him. Mm. Um, he's, he can't remember the, the world that is patterned after, but he has a few kind of hazy images in his head that he seizes upon and, and builds upon uh, to make this new world. And uh, seeing this, uh, other people demand to, to get the same treatment. And so mm -hmm. more humans, more scanned consciousnesses begin to show up and to, to populate that world and complications ensue. Right. Yeah. The book considers one kind of immortality through the perpetuation of the processes of the brain. What inspired you to write about a digital afterlife? Well, it's a thing that people have been talking about um, for a while. And uh, needless to say, there's a huge amount of controversy about uh, whether this even makes sense right. just on a techni technical level. Yeah. So I've been reading various books about the brain and consciousness and how it all works for a long time. And I don't know the answer. Um, I don't have the technical background uh, to really have a, a sound opinion about it. Um, however, uh, as a novelist, I am allowed to just kind of make stuff up. Uh -huh. um, so what I'm doing here is um, sort of uh, just going for it and um, saying, okay, if uh, let's say that the certain ideas that people have about the brain and consciousness are really true and that you could really get a brain going yeah. uh, in a digital simulation, let's take that idea uh, as the premise for a story and just run with it and see where it leads us. Yeah. I mean, it's a thought experiment in a way, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Pondering the digital upload process, I, I found myself wondering how much you were thinking about where technology might be leading us versus the actual nature of consciousness and, and what might persist after our physical body is dead. Uh, were you sort of thinking about both those things or was one sort of more than the other? Yeah, the um, it's both. You know, the um, I, I wanted to 
to first of all to tell a, a good story uh, with interesting characters. Um, and um, given the premise I just described, I needed to uh, be able to tell a. It's a it's a two threaded mm. novel, and one thread is sort of takes place in our world and and attempts to lay out the. The, some ideas about the technology behind uh, how this all uh, is is done. Yeah. And the other uh, um, the other thread of it takes place in Bitworld in this new um, digitally created universe uh, and tells a completely different kind of story that reads more like a myth or fantasy. Right. Yeah. The book is set in the near future, at least in in the beginning, with familiar references in the first part to things like Google and smartphones and VR headsets and the like. What made you decide to set the story in the near future rather than much further out in time? Uh, Well, I think that um, it's just it's immediately more relatable if if you can uh, take off from, as you say, familiar Mm. situations, familiar uh, technologies. Um, I don't think it needed to be in the distant future. Um, I'm uh, I'm sort of relying a lot uh, on the the idea that that quantum computers, which are starting to become a thing now, yeah. can operate a lot more quickly and efficiently than um, than classical computers. So I'm kind of Using that as a uh, as a plot device to say that um, that that the cloud in 20 years in the future is even more powerful uh, by many orders of magnitude than the cloud that we have today. Yeah, yeah. In the book, the interface between digital technology and and human beings, in the form of information conveyed via the internet and social media, is referred to as the miasma, and miasma has a poisonous connotation and and you've said that social media is a doomsday machine what observations of yours about the current internet are underlying the presentation of the miasma in the book yeah not my line by the way i uh uh i was not the the first person to coin doomsday (laughs) uh, machine to describe social media um um but um but I mentioned it in a in an interview a couple of weeks ago, and and it seems to have some legs. But, yes, um, yeah, <laughs> probably resonates so, with a lot of people. That's why you know, yeah. Yeah, so I need to track down the person who originally said it. <laughs> uh, who originally said it? Yeah, um, but um, anyway, um, yeah, it's hardly an original observation at this point to right, yeah, to say that that social media. Um, you know, is turning out to be uh, kind of a, a monster and creating um, problems all over the world. Um, the the ones here uh, in our country are the most obvious to us, but you can go to many, many other countries around the world and, and see cases in which um, social media is being used to spread rumors and uh, and false information that's that's leading to terrible consequences for people. Yeah, yeah. In the topic part of my show, I've considered the question of why we want everything done for us, why we seem so ready to give up human participation in 
so many different areas and also the fact that we seem to accept innovation without questioning whether it does actually make our lives better or even considering what better really means to us. And the very vocabulary of technological innovation builds in an implicit positive, you know, sort of advance, progress, evolution, mm -hmm. augmentation. Yeah. All innovations are assumed to be improvements to our lives. Rarely do we ask just because we can, should we? I'm wondering why you think this might be and, and whether that's part of why you wanted to explore the things you are in this book. Well, I think the overall record um, is is favorable. The um, If you look at um, if you look at the availability of things like, like vaccines, modern medicine, um, and you know many other examples I could cite, um, people on the whole are living better and longer uh, than ever before right now. <clears throat> However, um, you know there are these cases where uh, where unexpected consequences crop up. Um, and, you know, by their nature, they're unexpected. So when social media started, um, we just thought it was a way to share pictures with each other. And uh, then we discovered that it's sort of undermining the foundations of civil society mm. uh, and, and, and democracy. Um, <clears throat> so um, it's a mixed bag. Yeah, yeah. However original or amazing a concept is, what carries a story usually is the, is the characters. And I would say arguably character depiction is even more important in science fiction and fantasy to make the concepts plausible to the reader. How did characters figure in your creation process when you were writing for? Well, I think what's typical of not just science fiction, but, but almost any fiction is that there's the characters that you you put in there, um, so you know in advance who they are and what they're going to do. This mm. person is the protagonist. This person is the antagonist. You know, here's the role that they're going to play during the book. And then there's um, the plumber, um, so which is my kind of catch-all term for um, a, a minor character who kind of shows up on the fly. You didn't plan them in. Uh, but, you know, you're sort of riding along and the, the drain gets clogged and uh, the, the protagonist picks up the phone and calls a plumber and the plumber walks in to fix the drain. And suddenly mm. the, the plumber turns out to be more interesting than your main protagonist. So this oh, is kind of a known, yeah. a known thing that happens hmm. with writing <laughs> fiction. And... Uh, you can try to sort of get rid of the plumber because he's not part of the original plan, or you can just sort of go with it. Um, and I tend to be a go with it kind of person, right? Um, you know, because when when a character unexpectedly walks into the narrative and and comes alive, um, it means that something special is happening, and that you need to follow that. Uh, even if you don't know what direction it's leading. Right, yes, yeah. So in this case, uh, you know, Richard Forthrast Dodge is is the protagonist, just as he was of the, the previous book in which he appeared. Um, and uh, his niece Zula um, is another one of those, but um, there's a, a character named Corvallis 
Kawasaki, who is a classic plumber. He showed up in in Ream D um, just as a role player um, and and immediately became a a pretty interesting cat. And and so um, accordingly, uh, he ends up playing a bigger role in in this book. Yeah. Have you ever um, jettisoned your protagonist for a plumber? Um, That's a good question. I would have to think back. Uh, um, um, Yeah, now I'm really interested in in that. Uh, (laughs) Well, you've written a lot of books, so uh, I don't expect you to be able to just dredge that up. But uh, it would be an interesting thought to have a character appear that's like so interesting that it actually takes over from what you thought was going to be the main person. I think it's totally possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, but I, I can't uh, on the fly here. I can't. Uh, I can't pick out an example where it happened to me. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Well, if you just joined us, I'm talking to my special guest this week, number one New York Times best-selling author Neil Stevenson. You're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland. We're going to a break now, but we'll be back with more conversation after these messages. imagine living without stress, anxiety, or fear? And can you imagine a life filled with harmony and inner peace? Is that even possible? The Ananda Yoga and Meditation Center in Scotts Valley offers simple tools to help you become more effective at work and more centered in the face of life's challenges. At Ananda, we offer yoga classes for everybody, inspiring workshops, devotional chanting, and Sunday services based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Our teachers and therapists are highly trained professionals who work together to inspire a healthier you. And your first Ananda Yoga class is always free. Visit us at anandascottsvalley.org or call 338-YOGA. That's anandascottsvalley.org or 338-YOGA. Ciao, I'm Luca from Tramonti at 528 Seabright Avenue, Steps from the Ocean. We are the authentic Italian pizza and pasta restaurant, serving also organic salad and house-made dessert in a friendly family-style atmosphere, indoor or on our lovely patio. Tramonti is open every day, Monday through Friday, from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m., happy hour from front to six. Saturdays and Sunday, we open at 11, and we also serve brunch. We bake our bread and prep our fresh pasta and pizza daily. We want to say grazie to the Santa Cruz community for supporting us since 2012. Allora, buon appetito. Visit Tremonti at 528 Seabright Avenue in Santa Cruz. That's Tremonti at 528 Seabright Avenue in Santa Cruz. And follow Tremonti Santa Cruz on Instagram. It's wonderful, that's wonderful. Welcome back. You're listening to It's a Question of Balance with me, Ruth Copland, and my special guest from the arts this week, number one New York Times bestselling author, Neil Stevenson. 
And I just wanted to remind you again that Neil is going to be in Santa Cruz. So if you're in the uh, Bay Area at all, he's going to be in Santa Cruz on June 6th to talk about his new book and signed copies. And this is uh, through Bookshop Santa Cruz. And it's an off-site and ticketed event. So if you go to bookshopsantacruz.com, you can find information there about it. Um, It's in the evening, 7 p.m. You can get tickets online. And of course, you can also get them in store at Bookshop Santa Cruz. So we've been talking about um, Neil's new book, Fall or Dodge in Hell. And um, Neil, the later part of Fall, which deals with Bitworld or the digital afterlife, finds the lead character Dodge as effectively a lone god to start with in the new world. And I'm wondering whether you think an unconscious desire to be gods is at the back of a lot of our embracing of technology and relinquishing our agency as humans uh, to AI and, and various other things, and whether this is part of what you wanted to explore. Uh, well, it's it's not of personal interest to me. So, um, but but in in this case, um, I can't speak for for the motivations of others. But right. in this case, it's a it's a thing that's you know it's thrust upon uh, Dodge. Um, he uh, who later becomes known as Egg Dodd, um, which is just Dodge spelled backwards. But he. Um, he sort of finds himself in a formless, chaotic universe alone uh, with no agency at all um, and uh, has to begin kind of summoning something out of nothing. And that's a, a classic trope that shows up in a lot of mythologies, um, the idea of uh, a primordial god who, who creates the world out of chaos. So it's always been an interesting thing to me mm. um, so, so he does that and it's not out of a conscious desire to be God or godlike um, mm. it's just kind of what he has to do in order to uh, to, to not be completely miserable <clears throat> right yeah and then when other people start to show up uh, he he ends up uh, uh, possessing a kind of godlike status that he didn't want or ask for right hmm Fall or Dodge in Hell is nearly 900 pages long. It's been described as a novel within a novel or several books in one. What did you consider as the advantages of writing a long novel versus perhaps a trilogy of smaller books? So that's actually a topic I think about quite a bit um, because Mm. a lot of my books have this kind of internal multi-part structure. Mm. So Ream D, for example... It, it consists basically of two novels uh, bound together uh, into one. Mm. And the, the Baroque cycle, uh, although it was published in three volumes, is internally divided up into eight mm. books, you know, that if you, if they were separate volumes, they would just be kind of normal three or 400 page uh, books. Mm. So it's, and, and again, as you say, with fall, we've got, uh, basically a high fantasy novel embedded inside of a techno thriller. Mm. So I, I think it's really a, a question of just what works uh, publishing wise. Mm. If I were a fifties pulp writer, um, all of these books that I've mentioned probably would have come out 
uh, as separate paperbacks. Um, and you'd get to the end of one and you'd say, crap, you know, there, there's a cliffhanger. Or it's <laughs> not finished yet. I have to go buy this, the next one and right. the next one. Yeah. Um, and f- fill my whole shelf with these things. Mm. And there were a lot of, obviously, a lot of, of writers uh, of that era who did exactly that. <clears throat> I'm totally open to seeing my stuff published that way, but I leave the decisions about packaging to the experts in the, the publishing uh, industry. And um, the the way it has tended to go for me is that these things uh, get packaged together into relatively large individual uh, volumes. I mean, is that is that how you conceive of it? but you would be open to it being broken down or did you conceive of it in, in more parts and then it's put into one? Um, I just try to conceive of the overall story that's being told. Um, so in the case of the Baroque cycle, again, I, I always knew where that was going to end up, right? what the final, you know, scenes were going to be. Um, and then, uh, you know, try to tell that story in an engaging way without getting too worried too early about the the issue of of packaging. Right. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. But you finish a story before any of those decisions are made. It sounds like because I know some some authors they know they're writing a trilogy. They don't even write the two other parts and the first ones out. But it, it sounds like you complete a cycle of whatever story you have in mind. Yeah, that's definitely a factor in all of this. And that I'm too nervous to uh, uh, go out on a limb like that and <laughs> publish book one before. I'd like to have the last book um, at least in a rough draft form right. <clears throat> before, yeah. the, before the text gets frozen uh, on the first thing that gets published. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Yeah. 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 So... So I think that does lead to these things being packaged together because if we're waiting anyway right. for me to get the whole thing done, then, um, yeah. you know, yeah. might as well put it all together. That is a very good point, though, because especially with a, a story that's as, as long as this one, I imagine you could very well find, you know, three quarters of the way through that something that is taking you somewhere that then you might go back and make some changes, even if they're small yeah. ones to what you wrote earlier. Yeah, and and quite frequently they are small ones. It can be just a a minor detail that you change on page one that pays off mm. hundreds of pages uh, later, mm. but it's still uh, really important and valuable to be able to have have the freedom to do that. Yeah, yeah, I could totally see that. The world's feeling pretty crazy these days I think to a lot of people with alternative facts and fake news and lies passing as truth simply through exhaustive repetition people veering towards shallow engagement in in many things rather than deep measured interaction would you characterize fall or dodge in hell as a cautionary tale in any way I'm not saying it directly relates to those things I mentioned but you know would, would you think of it at all in that way yeah, it's a tricky line to walk uh, if you try to get too messagey yeah. uh, in a, a work of art. People sense it pretty early and they put up their deflector screens. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you can't ignore the world as it is. If you're going to you know, write a techno thriller yeah. set in the present day, 
um, you know, you, you've got to ground that in in what's actually happening. Mm. Um, so it can be kind of a fine line to walk uh, as a writer between, you know, on the one hand, making it uh, grounded in in what feels like a realistic depiction of where we are now versus uh, going too far and having it read like an ax grinder. Mm, yes, yeah. And I think obviously science fiction has a, a history of thought experiments, as we talked about earlier, you know, of sort of developing mm -hmm. various things, whether it be in a utopian or a dystopian way to just sort of take it further than something currently is to see how that might play out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm very interested in the psychologist Alice Miller, who wrote at length about how art could help people process difficult events, whether these are events they've experienced themselves or events they've witnessed. I'm wondering if you feel art can have any kind of healing effect on those making art and those experiencing it. Uh, well, if, if, if people are getting healed by it, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to, uh, to tell them that they're wrong. You know, <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, I, I think at a minimum it can uh, create a feeling in the, the person who's experiencing that art that uh, I'm not alone. Yes, yeah. You know, there's there's somebody out there who has perceived things the way I have perceived them or had experiences uh, that are are similar to ones that I, I've had, uh, you know, somebody who... Whose, whose feelings are kind of uh, kind of resonate with mine in mm. some way. Yeah, um, and that's a that's a, a really important key to uh, to being sane, frankly, mm. is to know that there's other um, creatures in the world who uh, uh, who who agree with you at some level. Yes, yeah. Perhaps a, another way of looking at it. Um... I interviewed the Man Booker Prize winning author Marlon James and he teaches in his writing classes that characters arise out of our need for them. And um, so I also wonder, perhaps through creating art or consuming art, that perhaps it's a way of integrating inner parts of ourselves. If we, if we think of characters as different parts of ourselves, is that something you've ever experienced at all with, with your writing or reading? Well, I'm not a highly self-conscious writer. Uh, I find it kind of gets in my way. Right. Yeah. I will. I will say that. Um, I will say that uh, to to write a character well, um, there has to be some commonality between things that you think, things that you feel, perceptions that you have, and uh, and that character, mm. or else you just you just couldn't do it. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Readers are often curious how much of themselves a writer puts into their writing. How would you describe your own experience functioning within your creative writing? Um, I, in my opinion, uh, it's pretty common among readers to overestimate how much, mm. uh, how much uh, a character is, is autobiographical or sort of quote based on unquote a specific actual person right yeah um, so i've i've read 
I, I try not to read reviews and so on of my own stuff, but I'll, I'll see people sometimes on the internet very confidently uh, stating that such and such character in one of my books is based on, or is a thinly veiled depiction <laughs> of some real person, and yeah. they're always completely wrong. Um, yes, yeah. yeah. So I think it's more of a kind of holographic uh, process where everyone that I've ever met or um, or encountered through their writing, their art, uh, has at least some degree of of influence on every fictional character that uh, mm. that I put into my books. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, the holographic idea definitely. One never knows how a book will be received, but I'm wondering what your criteria are for being satisfied with a book to feel that it's ready to go out into the world. Um, I I like to feel as though it's um, told a story uh, in a way that, um, that that makes for a good yarn. Basically, I think at, at the end of the day. Uh, we're, uh, we're in the yarn writing business. Um, uh, the human brain is kind of wired up to want to hear, uh, stories, linear narratives. Um, mm. and, and we need to, so we have a sort of obligation to deliver that first and foremost. Mm. And if you can deliver that, then, um, there's all kinds of other, uh, fun you can have along the way. Uh, but it's, it's got to start with the yarn. Right, yeah. I've um, interviewed the iconic fantasy author Tad Williams several times and, and we've discussed the intellectual snobbery surrounding genre fiction, which is fairly one-dimensional as obviously there's a breadth of writing with some of it exceptionally well-written. As a literary writer, I'm wondering whether you've been aware of that kind of intellectual snobbery at all about genre fiction. Uh, I'm certainly aware of it. I don't... Um, I don't think of myself uh, as a literary writer. I think of myself as sort of a, a bit of a genre hack, frankly, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't, um, I don't, I don't need to, to, to worry about, about those classifications, you know, whatever people want to call me <clears throat> is, is fine. Yeah. I, I feel that, I feel that there's a, a split that happened um, around the time when movies I, I sort of time it to when when movies became a thing and took over mm. uh, from the novel as the kind of uh, the most important exponent of of popular culture. So up until then, um, novels were synonymous with popular culture. And, mm. oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. And so at that point, um, I think it kind of of split developed in which sort of the, the concept of, of writing as a fine art, like ballet or oboe concertos came into existence. Mm. Um, and I think it's fine that, 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 that happened. Um, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't work particularly well for me. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but a lot of good has come of it. So I think still today there's this kind of split between uh, people who write as a craft um, to make to make entertainment and people who are coming at it more from a fine arts 
perspective. Um, both of them work. Um, sometimes there's this friction uh, between them, um, as you say, and I think it's I think a lot of it is just driven by the disparity in in payout, <laughs> in just yeah. the financial the financial yeah. payout, you know that yeah. that genre fiction tends to to produce as compared to yeah um, the, you know fine art fiction. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and like all things, you know, we we seem to have this impetus to want to make things black and white, and they really, rarely, very are. So you know that the the crossover between you know fine art writing and and popular genre f- fiction, you know, is considerable. I think you know you yeah. you know so, yeah things get really yeah. interesting when that when that crossover starts to happen yeah 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 I agree finally I just wanted to ask you we're nearly at the end of the show but um in California creative writing and fiction reading are being somewhat usurped in the the school curriculum by so-called practical reading and analytical writing I'm wondering what your thoughts are on whether it's necessary for children to have fiction reading and writing as part of their education? Well, I think that to a certain degree, writing is writing and that uh, there's some value to be, there's some, some good things to be learned from just writing expository mm. um, material about anything whatsoever, be it fiction, nonfiction, how to replace a doorknob, uh, so uh, yeah. I'm certainly not against um, helping people get better at straight up expository prose writing because yeah. I think that the skills that you gain from doing that cross over directly mm. into being able to write right. to write fiction. Um, so uh, um, the uh, uh, um, fiction reading. So I, I think any. Any time spent engaging with the the written word as a reader or as a writer uh, is, I think, rewiring your brain in a way that's super valuable. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I, I think there are a lot of kids who 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 can benefit from um, from also being able to write in an imaginative and and creative way. Yes. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of the show. Thank you so much for talking to us, Neil. I've really appreciated it. It was fun. It was a pleasure to do it. Good. I'm glad. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, seeing you here in in Santa Cruz on on the 6th. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it as well. Great. Well, we'll see you then. Thank you.